of Sanka, which was acquired by the FT a couple of months ago. Um, we're most well known for developing the FT web app, which is a uh, touch-optimized website uh, experience of the Financial Times that um, it offers an app-like experience, but entirely in the browser. Um, and our goal is to use a single, uh, a single uh, stack of technologies to provide the FT to all uh, touch platforms, if we can. Now, at the moment, we can't necessarily do that. Um, so we have a bit of native um, code in there as well, in the mix. But our goal with our native apps is for them not to exist. So as browsers improve and um, features become more stable and more standard, um, we try to move more and more into the browser when we can. So this brings me to you know why we need local storage. Why do we need um, more client-side storage? The real benefit that native apps have over web applications is that they can maintain large amounts of uh, client-side state. Um, they can do things very quickly because they can cache a lot of stuff uh, locally. Um, so reactions to user input can be instantaneous and they can launch when offline. So smartphone users that tap an icon on their home screen would expect something to happen regardless of how good or bad their network signal is. I mean, it, it, the app that then launches may not be very useful, uh, but at least it will it'll launch and it will give you some kind of experience. So to try and provide that kind of level of um, UX using purely web technologies, we need to uh, start using a lot more local storage. Um, now, when I say local storage, this is slightly confusing because there is one of the four available um, client-side storage technologies that's called local storage, but I'm actually referring to all four of them. Um, three are quite new, uh, one is quite old, and um, the three that have come along in the last couple of years are the, the HTML5 application cache, which is like a kind of um, extremely dumb local web server um, with very limited capabilities. Uh, there's local storage and session storage, which are JavaScript APIs that act as simple key value stores in the browser. Um, and we've got the uh, more advanced um, indexed storage technologies, um, which are generally either implemented as WebSQL or IndexedDB. I'll just cover off a few of these in a little bit more detail, because it's quite interesting to note that although we've had cookies for a really long time, and that's been really the only technology you've had to store any amount of information client-side, suddenly we have three more. Um, and the obvious question is, well, why did we need three? Why couldn't we just have one that did everything? So they all have um, good points and bad points. So you know, starting with cookies, the implementation of cookies is basically universal. Um, but you know, I say almost, if you're being totally pedantic, there are certain blackberries that use commas as cookie delimiters instead of semicolons. Um, but you know they have significant disadvantages, tiny, tiny size limit. Um, they're sent in every request to the server, and people in the European Union really hate you if you use them. So you know we need we need something else. We can't just use cookies. So we could have an index data store in the browser. That sounds good. Um, and there is reasonably wide support for IndexedDB and WebSQL if you support both of them. Um, because the, the support for either one is, is, is slightly uh, platform dependent. Um, but on the downside, you know, WebSQL basically died the moment it was invented because everyone decided IndexedDB was way better but wouldn't implement it. Um, and sometimes we find that the WebSQL queries are so slow that it's actually quicker to get the data from the network. Um, 
which sounds ludicrous, but is actually true if you've got a really fast network and you're retrieving a lot of data. Um, and another disadvantage is that ultimately this is a technology you need to access from JavaScript. So it's not going to help you if you have an empty browser and you want to go to a web page and you don't have a network connection. Local storage and also session storage, but local storage is a persistent one, um, offers a key value store, so kind of like memcache in the browser. Its advantage is that it's really, really simple. Um, it is really fast. The number of reads and writes you can do um, in, in a tight loop is, is really quite impressive, we find. Um, on the downside, <coughs> unlike WebSQL and IndexedDB, um, reads and writes to local storage are synchronous. So the time you, you need to spend waiting for that I.O. to the storage layer will hold up your JavaScript execution. Not for very long, but, um, it, is, um, but it is a delay. And on the plus side as well, of course, that makes your implementation simpler, typically. And again, it's something that you can only access from JavaScript, so it's not going to help you uh, load an image uh, or uh, any other resource from a URL. Uh, which brings us to the HTML5 application cache. Um, which has the advantage of being able to do that. It provides a, like a, a mini little local web server in the browser that can deliver resources uh, from URLs um, without any JavaScript involvement at all. Which makes it really easy to cache things like sprites and fonts and splash screen images and that kind of thing. Um, the downsides to the application cache I could spend hours and hours talking about, um, but I think Jake may be covering some of those later on. Um, so, so I will leave that to him. Um, suffice to say, it's, it's a ludicrous implementation um, which is uh, incomplete, inconsistent, uh, it's buggy, uh, the JavaScript API makes no sense, uh, you can't invalidate it. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it serves a purpose and there are no other technologies available to do what it does. So in short, we can't solve all the problems <coughs> we have with creating offline applications with one technology, so we have to use them all. So here's an example of how we can use all those technologies together to create an offline app experience. So let's assume that we have, say, a financial news site, um, just to pick a random example. And uh, we're going to load an article page from this site. Now, let's imagine that this financial news site publishes a lot of articles, uh, so we probably have more than we could feasibly store um, in the browser's cache. So this URL of a random article is unlikely to hit a, uh, a specific resource that we have told the app cache to store. So instead, the app cache can serve a fallback, which is a resource we've told it to cache and serve if the user requests a URL that it doesn't have. And that's really the most powerful part of what the app cache does, because that means we can serve something which acts essentially as a front controller but on the client side. So this is what we put in our fallback. We have things like a splash screen, some basic CSS, error messages and support information that's hidden, but we can, we can make those appear if something starts going wrong. Um, and we have our boot code. And the important thing about the boot code and all of this stuff that we put in the fallback is that it's stuff that we don't need to change. When we release new code, we typically don't release changes to any of this stuff because we expect it to live in the app cache for a really long time. And because of the problems with the app cache, it's, it's hard to continuously update that kind of, um, that particular bit of storage. So 
the boot code's purpose is to load the code that we are updating regularly. So it pulls that in from uh, local storage, along with the CSS and HTML templates that make up the majority of our app. We can then take that large amount of JavaScript that we've loaded from local storage and eval it, load it into memory, um, check that we haven't encountered any errors when we've done that, and if um, there's been no errors, we can trigger an event to, to trigger startup of the app. Um, if we did encounter some errors during that process, we could use some of the resources that we've got in the fallback page to provide some kind of feedback to the user, whether that be um, a, you know, a, a nice error page that, that tells you that you need to refresh or um, contact support or whatever. So having uh, gone through that boot process and loaded that code in, um, the, the page now gets bigger because we've added extra resources into it that weren't in it when it was served from the app cache. And having done that, we can then, in our main application code, check, um, say, check a cookie to identify the user. Um, we can then remove the redundant content, the stuff that came in the fallback page, but because the boot process worked, we no longer need it. Um, and we can examine the URL that the user requested. At this point, and up to this point, everything that we've done has been generic. So we've not actually paid any attention to the URL that the user loaded yet. So we can now look at the <coughs> URL the user lo loaded, or tried to load, and we can try and render that content locally. So we need to get the content from somewhere. And hopefully, we have that specific piece of content in, say, WebSQL, or it could also be in local storage. Um, and that enables us to then render the page. So everything about what I've just described is completely alien to the idea of making a request for a URL, having a server put together that page and send it back to you. Because ultimately, no server has sent back any resource in, re in response to that request. And the only resource that the user got from the app cache did not contain a representation of that URL. It was a completely generic boot page. So it's approaching the idea of assembling and displaying a page to the user in a completely different way. But it doesn't break the principles of the, the web, because if the user were online, there's no reason why you can't send that request to the server and get a page back in, the completely, in a completely normal way. So that's the basic principle of how you might create an offline web application. Um, and the main challenge that you run into once you solve all those kinds of problems are um, restrictions on how and what you can how on what you can store and how much of it you can store. So take for example content images. So um, for a news site particularly, there are a lot of images which don't form part of the site itself. They're not icons or sprites or splash screens. They are, you know, pictures of prime ministers or whoever, you know, that, that go into the content of our articles. And we produce probably a couple of hundred of those every day. So it's completely impractical to put those in the app cache. It's also very difficult to put them in local storage or WebSQL or IndexedDB because it's binary data. And those storage layers don't offer us URLs. So we can't then put those URLs into our image tags. So the image tag has to get the image from somewhere. And so the, the solution that we use is to uh, base64 encode those images on the server, send base64 strings uh, to the client, and then store that string data in, in those, local, in those uh, storage um, layers on the client. So either local storage or WebSQL or IndexedDB. 
Um, you can then pull the Base64 out of storage and insert it into the DOM as a data URI, which essentially means embedding the image data itself into the DOM, and that browser, the browser will render that quite happily. So the disadvantage of doing this is that the Base64 data will be about 30% bigger than the original um, binary image file. Um, but some of the advantages, which are quite interesting, are um, that obviously being a string, you can um, you can concatenate multiple images together and return them as a JSON, as a JSON array, for example. Um, and also, um, you know how when you're on 3G network, sometimes images appear to be recompressed by the network operator because they recognize it's an image and they'll try and compress it to reduce the amount of bandwidth you use. So we don't want them to do that because we've already sized our images very precisely for the devices that we're sending them to. Um, so by sending them base64 strings, the network operator doesn't realize that we're sending image data so they don't interfere with it. It's quite ironic that we have to make it 30% bigger to do that. Um, so this is this is, this is a, that's a great example of how we can very quickly use up all the available space that we have in the browser. Um, and there are some very, very low limits on all of these different places where we can ferret data. So it becomes immediately very um, imperative, it becomes immediately imperative for us to uh, use that storage as efficiently as we possibly can. So I've been spending uh, the day trying to uh, get some definitive data on all of these different combinations of things. Uh, the only one I couldn't find was, was this one because I ran out of time with writing scripts to experiment. Um, but uh, as you can see, it's kind of a, a mishmash of different numbers. Um, the one that we find the most restrictive is that on the iPhone and iPad, um, you have at most 50 megs of offline storage. So if you get permission from the end user to increase from the soft quota limit of five to the maximum hard quota limit of 50, that's as far as you're going. You can't go any further than that. Whereas on other platforms, you can, with permission, go uh, quite high or even um, completely unlimited. Um, interestingly, uh, IE 10 actually has a default 500 meg soft quota on index DB storage, so, um, or at least so that their docs say, so um, that could be quite interesting. But on platforms that are not IE10, which I know everyone is frantically targeting, um, we have to be a bit more creative. So we have to find creative ways of using that limited storage uh, more effectively. So um, what we've been experimenting with is ways of compressing that data in the browser. Um, now, the kind of techniques that we're going to talk about are not really compression, but uh, just a way of trying to uh, trying to get the data stored in a sane format that will actually use the space more efficiently. Because the fact is JavaScript internally uses UCF-16 to encode text. And that's a really good idea when it comes to um, being able to represent any Unicode character um, and also being able to process strings very quickly. Because it's fixed length encoding, it has exactly two bytes per character. So if you want to chop a string in half, very easy, you can just take half halfway through the byte stream and you have half the number of characters. Whereas UTF-8, which is the encoding we're all probably more familiar with, is a variable length encoding. So you can't guarantee the length of a character in bytes. So whilst it's a great idea for, for, um, for a processing point of view, it's a really terrible idea from a storing of English text point of view. Because 
the majority of characters that we use in the English text um, fit within the ASCII character set, which means that we could quite easily store them using a single byte. So uh, the upshot of this is that um, in your uh, local storage um, file that you're storing within the browser, this is what is actually being stored. Every other byte is wasted because your data is not using um, the leading byte of the UTF-16 uh, UTF character. So could we make some compromises on the uh, compatibility of our storage engine in order to get more out of um, the actual storage itself? Um, so the obvious immediate answer is could we convert to UTF-8? UTF-8 is far more efficient if we're storing um, English than uh, UTF-16 is. Um, and we could make that conversion in the browser. So we could examine each character, work out how to represent that character in UTF-8, um, and then convince JavaScript that every two bytes of that byte stream were actually a UTF-16 character and reconstruct a string based on that. Um, and that would look something like this. So we could take the word Roy's with an apostrophe S, and the apostrophe is one of those annoying curly ones that um, UTF-8 requires three bytes to represent. So in UTF-16, we would represent this using these four um, possibly Chinese, possibly Japanese characters um, at the bottom here. So the first one takes the R and the O, the second one takes the Y and the first third of the uh, apostrophe, the second one takes the second two-thirds of the apostrophe, and the final character takes the S. Um, and this is a lossless encoding. We can go from we can go back from this and reconstruct the original text quite easily. Um, and what we're, we're not actually changing the amount of data we're storing, nor are we really compressing it. We're just convincing JavaScript that um, we're actually storing something different, that in terms of the number of characters is fewer. Um, one of the slightly annoying side effects of this is if it, you try and debug in um, Chrome characters, um, it's not really very helpful. Um, but, you know, at least it shows that your compression is working. <laughs> so, unfortunately, one of the disadvantages of doing this is that the actual amount of code we need to convert uh, to UTF-8 is quite long, and uh, it's computationally quite expensive. So, the second approach that we looked at was just to use plain ASCII. So, the, in the majority of uh, texts that we work with, there are mostly ASCII characters interspersed with a few non-ASCII characters. So what we could do is on the server side, we could encode all those non-ASCII characters as HTML entities, and then we could serve to the client plain ASCII. So this is one of the first projects that I've worked on in a long time where I've served a, uh, uh, a Charset ASCII header rather than UTF-8. Um, but it makes sense because it means that we can do a far uh, simpler uh, transcoding from UTF-8 to UTF-16. So if we take the word simple, for example, um, every pair of characters, we can simply take the character codes, combine the bytes, and um, tell JavaScript that we want this character in UTF-16. Uh, and you get one character where previously you had two. So you get exactly 50% saving. Well, except of course that you've got to produce your um, HTML entities, which is going to blow your original data very slightly. But the code to produce this is so simple that I can actually just print it on a slide. Um, so the only 
the only two things worth mentioning here are, of course, that because each character in our output represents exactly two characters in our input, our input has to be a multiple of two characters long. So if it's not, we'll add a character to make sure it is. Um, and then we'll step through each of the characters in the string and take the first of the pair, bit shift it by eight bits, um, add the charcode value of the second character in the pair, and then create a character out of that, the resulting character code. And to convert back to the original ASCII, you just do the reverse. Now, when it comes to base64, which we're using a lot for storing images, so actually probably 80 to 90% of our data is base64 encoded strings, we can do better. Because base64 uses only 64 characters that actually only require six bits. Um, so potentially we could get up to a 63% compression ratio, which would rescue the, uh, the, the, the data size that we lost uh, when, we when we encoded the image into base64 in the first place. Now, 6 doesn't divide into 16, but it does divide into 48, so we can create uh, three UTF-16 characters that represent every eight base64 characters, and we can do that like this. So uh, we take each character in our base64 encoded string, we use a mapping table, we can't use the um, direct ASCII character code because we need to use... Um, we need to use a sequence between 0 and 63. So we use a mapping table to convert each one of the possible 64 characters to an index. We then represent that index in six bits of binary, so not a whole byte. Um, and then we um, add those uh, bits into the uh, output bytes until we've got 16 bits. And then that is one character which we can encode into UTF-16. So the result is that this first character, which is actually not printable, um, is the result of taking the A, the B, and the first four out of six bits of the C, the remaining two bits going to the next character along with the D and the O and the first two bits of the P. So um, the result is it's really efficient because we are using every possible bit that we have out of the storage, um, but it's also relatively slow to compress and decompress. The code is actually pretty straightforward though, it's not much longer than the ASCII version. Um, it just requires a little bit more bit shifting um, and a little bit more memory. So um, you can go through that later if you want. Um, but in summary, um, we have found that using client-side storage extensively allows us to create applications which have that responsiveness. Um, and provide that kind of user experience that makes them genuine rivals to having a native app installed on your device. Um, and because we are currently so hampered by these uh, fragmented implementations and really tiny quotas, um, we need to do this kind of um, hackery to make the applications work as well as they do. <coughs> but you know, with that amount of effort, um, you can get a great result. Um, and that is it. Thank you very much. And before anyone asks me any questions, um, we, we are two months old, um, but we are frantically looking for more people who want to join us. So if you are interested in doing this kind of stuff, drop us a line. Anyone got questions? Um, with the Base64 encoded stuff, 
Um, did you try, like, unbasics before coding it and then treating it as ASCII? That yes, that was that, slower. That was even slower? Yeah, much slower. And more code. Cool. Tom? Oh, Will? Why do you use images in local storage rather than directly in the HTML as data errors? Why don't you put them directly in? Because the images went both in local storage as base 64 yep. and also in the HTML source version as data errors. They, they, go in, they get put into the, the source code. Well, they don't get put in the source code. They get put into the DOM by the JavaScript, but they're not in the source code to start with. They could be. I mean, what you could do, and what we've done um, sometimes, is to uh, create pages on the server that actually have the images pre-inlined into the source, and then serve that. So it's like you serve your HTML page with images, and it doesn't have to make any any other requests to get the images. Do you think at some point in the future you will move from WebSQL <laughs> to App Cache, or do you think you'll stick with SQL or IndexedDB? Uh, well, app for cache images, sorry. for images. Yeah. Oh, I see. Um, well, the current implementation of app cache wouldn't wouldn't would make the kind of use that we need to make for images impossible. Um, mainly because it's atomic. So, um, if you want to add an image to your app cache, you have to re-download everything in the app cache. So, we publish 200 images a day. That's impossible. Will you all slide to line? Yes, definitely. Slide share, uh, trip London. So I guess we've got three questions. Uh, number, <laughs> number, number one is what's what's broken with HTML 1.1 caching? I, I mean, if you were to generate an immutable URI for each image, mm. and in JavaScript you could know if you had this in your page and got it cached locally, um, you then stuff that into local storage or whatever. Why, why rather than the HTML 1.1 cache, what problems with the standard HTML 1.1 cache and the error? Okay. So that's that's a difficult question to answer because I think that um, to a certain extent it might be that most browsers' implementations of the HTTP cache um, assume that servers aren't setting the right headers. So they will check for they will check for validators more than they should do, for yeah, example. Yeah, so you, see, you get you get a validator and you yeah. don't get a callback in your JavaScript yeah. to say, I'm going to validate this even though it should be valid. Yes. And if you're in an offline situation, you you're so lost there. Possibly it is already in the cache, but the browser tries to validate yeah, yeah, it and it can't validate it because it's offline so it won't use it. Second question. Um, you talked about encoding base sixty four images a lot. Um, have you, or are you using much JSON? Um, because I mean, you're talking about packing ASCII, um, but I mean, Backbone.js, Ember.js, um, and a lot of the frameworks that I've used um, entirely have this local storage model, which is lovely uh, as soon as you start playing with it. But they, they pack all of kind of the app state into jobs uh, into JSON, uh, and that means that not only am I packing ASCII into UDF16. I'm packing a million curly brackets into UDF16, yes. uh, yeah. which means that I'm not just 50% you know, <coughs> efficient, it means yeah. that I'm JSON on which is horrific. Yeah. Well, as long uh, as you're not yeah, using you know, XML, you... then that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I guess the question is, have you played with anything in JavaScript um, to, to take the JSON overhead away? Uh, to some extent. I mean, we have 
there, there are micro optimizations that we've uh, we've done occasionally. We try to target slow areas of the app and look for opportunities to improve. So, for example, we have an API um, module which will batch together multiple API requests into a single HTTP call. Because the slowest thing you can do on a 3G network is make multiple HTTP requests. So quite often you'll have quite high bandwidth, but really high latency. So um, it, can, it can make your app much, much, feel much, much faster to, to batch multiple API calls into one single request. And um, in order to do that, we need to send, obviously, quite a large request. So our URLs can get very long. You know, we'll have um, app.com slash API, question mark request equals, and then a really long string of all the requests, all the actions we want the service to take. Um, and what we found was that those URLs were typically exceeding the length that um, was recommended for a, a URL, and we had to start um, sending post requests with request bodies instead. And they're much more difficult to cache in things like Varnish and, and other um, edge load balances. So we did do a few things like um, making the, the uh, format in which we specify our API requests much less verbose. So rather than sending like uh, you know an object with two keys, action and arguments, we just send an array with two elements. Um, so you know it's it's tiny things like that. They can make a bit of a difference. Okay, well, um, my, my third question, which I guess I have my own answer to. Sit down, Tom. Let's. <laughs> you might be slightly off topic of local storage, but you mentioned briefly that your goal is to get rid of the native. What are your biggest hurdles of doing that today? Um, Android browser, probably. <laughs> Which part? Um, what parts of the app? Is it's it the, the app? well, Android browser isn't hardware accelerated, so um, or rather the CSS transitions aren't. Accelerated. So uh, things like swiping are very, very difficult. I mean, you know, you could, you can sort of see how it might work if you put your finger down and move it very, very slowly. You can see how there's, it is supported in, to some degree, but it's, it's just nowhere near usable. Um, so for the FT app, we have a native wrapper that, for side-to-side uh, -side transitions, actually creates two web views and loads two complete copies of the app. And so you're sliding between one copy of the app and another, and then it destroys this one. So you know that's that's the lengths to which you have to go to replace functionality which the web uh, the web browser doesn't support very well. Um, have you seen that improve in 4.0? No. <laughs> um, in fact, ice cream sandwich. Um, in fact, ice cream. I think. We, we, we used to be using the history API in JavaScript, so an ice cream sandwich actually dropped support for the history API in JavaScript. So, um, is it, was it ice cream sandwich or was it, it honeycomb? It branched, at, um, when they were starting developing free, it branched up to before that version of WebKit went in. Yeah. So free and for history. It was honeycomb, yes. Okay. So in honeycomb, uh, they dropped support for the history API. Ridiculous. But, you know, so now we have to go back to hash fragments on the URL. Um, 
So what I really dearly want is uh, to be able to deliver these kinds of apps more reliably is an auto-updating browser on Android. Well, Chrome isn't the default browser, so I mean, so far we don't have any significant user user base using non-default installed browsers. So have you seen Chrome as better on Android, or is it too early? Too early to say. We have tried it. It 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 works to some degree, but you know, we would have to spend a lot of time on it to make it fluid. The transitions are not quicker, but it's got the APIs. It's got push state. It's got a layer. It does have it does have the history API. They're, they're, they're less buggy, but they're slow. But certainly, it's certainly got the update process, which is brilliant. So, you know, the fact is that if something doesn't work in Chrome and Android, at least there's light at the end of the tunnel. Whereas with Android browser, there are phones that are going to be around for ages and ages that will not update that browser. And that's a real shame. Anyone else? With the, with the small limits on Yeah, so you could imp you have to implement your own algorithm. So you know, least recently used, or um, you know, whatever you want to to do, really, whatever logic you want to implement. Is there ways of catching errors where where you are full? Then? Yes, you you can catch a an exception, which will tell you when you've when you've exceeded quota. Um, so in some cases, like the main FT app actually has um, a a JSON document we call the structure, which actually defines what today's stories are. So we know that that will fit within the storage limits. So in actual fact, we'll actually ditch anything that's not no longer in the structure. Um, so you can read any story you like, but if you're offline, you can only read today's stories. So it's basically today's paper offline. Any other questions? Yeah. In the process of making the websites, which are essentially acting as local apps, have you, have you found the managing of both the standard online versions and the offline managed cache versions, do you find it difficult? Yes. Sure. <laughs> um, so trying to debug an application that uses all of these different forms of caching is terrible. Um, you have to, you have to uh, invest very early on in a robust set of QA flags. So um, it's really got to be possible to do things like turning off the app cache. Um, we also have flags to do things like not inline, uh, sorry, inlining the JavaScript rather than um, bootloading it. So um, for example, in fact, now this is less of an issue because late, later revisions of Chrome actually allow you to debug JavaScript that's been about. Um, but earlier versions and also the inspector on the playbook, the BlackBerry playbook, um, don't allow you to do that. So if you want to actually step through your code and um, and debug it in real time, then you need to have included the JavaScript um, just in the page source. So we have a QA flag that we can turn on to cause the server to actually put the code into the page source rather than loading it from local storage. Um, other things like, you know, if we have third-party APIs that we rely on through our API, we have QA flags to turn them off so that they, they don't respond. Um, so that we can test how our application responds if those third-party APIs are unavailable. Um, we can turn off and on all kinds of things to try and help make our debugging of these kind of applications easier. Yeah. Um, quick question. Am I I'm I'm the, 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 the,
Sorry? What technology do you use as the PHP. I mean, there's a whole slew of stuff around that, like memcache, beanstalk, uh, varnish, uh, MySQL. There's, there's a whole slew of, of stuff to handle the scale, but it's basically PHP. Okay, I think. Awesome. Yeah, that's nice.